I hope you had a very Merry Christmas, and uh, I hope that you had a lot of, of fun during that time. My name is Ryan, for those of you who uh, don't know, and I serve as college and online pastor here at Northway, and I just want to welcome you and welcome those of you in our overflow room and joining us on Facebook Live as well. I'm really excited to be able to share with you what God has laid on my heart this morning. So if you would have gone into my house at any point growing up during the Christmas season, you would see several of these nativities or nativities like this. And my guess is a lot of your houses are the same as well. But ours is a little bit different. It was like this one. And as you can tell, something's missing from your traditional nativity set. I mean, you've got animals, you've got some shepherds, even an angel up there. You've got the holy family of Joseph and Mary and Jesus. But there's something missing from this nativity. It's the wise men, right? And here's the reason why those were missing from our nativities growing up. Because my sister, when one day she learned the truth that the wise men were not actually there at the birth of Jesus, which I'm sorry for ruining that for some of you maybe, that she learned that truth and came home and she took our wise men from our nativity and placed them across the room. She placed them afar because she said the wise men were afar, they were not there. And my dad got home and he saw it and he took the wise men and put them back in our nativity. And then Morgan, my sister, saw it and she moved them back away. And thus began the Knapp family tradition of my sister taking our wise men and hiding them somewhere in the house. And then my dad going and finding them and bringing them back to the nativity. And, and here's the thing. Morgan learned the truth of the nativity, the truth of the wise men, and she had a couple of options. She could either reject it and suppress it and continue on as she always had, or she could embrace it and allow it to change how she viewed and interacted with the nativity. Now, here's why I tell you that. One, since this is the, the first Sunday after Christmas, after we celebrate the birth of Christ, we're going to look at the story of the wise men since they came after Jesus was born. And two, we're going to ask ourselves the question, what will we do with truth? What will we do with the truth of Christ? We'll be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, and I'm going to read it for us. And as I read it, I'm going to pause and unpack it for us and hopefully tie it all together. But keep this question in mind as we read, what will we do with the truth of Christ? So starting off in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So just pausing here for a moment, make a note of Bethlehem, because we're going to come back to that here in a moment. But we're introduced to a man named Herod. He's King Herod. And it's important for us to know a little bit of a background to help us understand the passage even greater. Now, there's a lot of Herods throughout Scripture, so let's figure out which one this one is. This is Herod I, also known as Herod the Great, and he ruled Israel and Judah from about 37 to 4 BC. And so he, was, he ruled as king, but he wasn't fully a king. He was what we would call maybe a puppet king. And the reason why we would say that is because the Roman Empire owned and ruled this land at this point in time. And so they ruled even Israel so what they did is they instituted a king. They gave Herod authority and power to be king over this time, over this land, 
but he didn't have full authority because he still answered to Rome itself and answered to the Roman Empire. So he was a king, but he wasn't really a king. He was kind of a king. He was a puppet king because he answered to the authority of Rome. The other thing you need to know about Herod is he did not inherit the throne by birth. This was not his birthright. He actually came to power through blood. He ruthlessly murdered his own wife, several sons, and other relatives to get to this place of power. And because of this, he was very paranoid. He figured since he took it by blood, then someone might try to take it back through blood. And he was a very paranoid man. He was hated by the Jewish nationalists who believed that Israel should be completely independent of foreign rule. And so the bottom line about Herod, what we need to understand is that he was king of the Jews, Under the authority of Rome, he was powerful, ruthless, and he was paranoid. The other group that we're introduced to are the wise men. It says they're the wise men from the east. Now, what you might not know is that if you read throughout Scripture, there's actually a biblical theme of the east. And the theme is that the east enters into this negative connotation. See, back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, they're cast east of the garden. It says also in Genesis that when Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, he settled east of Eden. You see it when Lot leads Abraham, he goes to the east where Sodom and Gomorrah were. You see east wind brought by locust in, or brought locust in Exodus. You see the, the people of the east coming up against the Israelites in Judges. Even in the layout of the tabernacle, on the west side, you have the, the holy of holies, the presence of God. And as you get further and further east, you leave the presence of God. And so the east brings negative connotations. So these were men from the east. And so what that tells us is they were pagans. They did not worship the one true God of Israel. Now, I'm about to ruin another part of the nativity for you, is they weren't kings. I know we have the song, We Three Kings, all that good stuff. They weren't kings, and taking it even further, we don't know how many there were. We guess three, may, or people will say three because of the, uh, the gifts that they bring, but we don't know. We just know it was more than one, so it could have been two or five, or ten, or a hundred. We don't know. We just know it's more than, more than uh, one. But this word was actually magi, and this word referred to priests and experts in mysteries in uh, Persia and in Babylon. And you can actually see that in the book of Daniel. But by this point in time, it actually had a, a broader meaning, or meaning. And it, it was a wide range of people whose practices include astrology, it included dream interpretation, study of sacred writings, the pursuit of wisdom and magic. And so he, here's your bottom line about the, the wise men, what we need to understand. They were pagan spiritualists, and they were seeking truth and wisdom. And then finally it says they came to Jerusalem, which was the capital of Israel. It was the, the city of God. So continuing on in verse 2, it says, uh, they were saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So the wise men, they go around asking people in Jerusalem, hey, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Where is this new king? We saw his star. So what is this star? Now, there's a bunch of uh, scholars who have a bunch of different opinions on this. Some will say it was an angel, this angelic being that that lit the sky and led their way. 
Other will say it's just some spiritual light that led their way, kind of like in the Exodus when God led his people out of Egypt. He led them through a pillar of fire. So they say something similar to that. Others will say it's just a, it's just a, a star that was birthed that day and was over Bethlehem. And so they saw it, they noticed it because they studied the stars. And, and here's the thing, we can speculate all day on what this star actually was. But here's what we know to be true, and here's what is clear. That God divinely and sovereignly orchestrated some sort of cosmic phenomenon to send a message to these pagan spiritualists. And they received this message, and they, pers- they pursued it. They sought after the truth of it. And the message that's actually quoted in this passage is actually Numbers chapter 24. See, Matthew, what we're going to see uh, this morning as we read, and if you read all of Matthew's gospel, bends over backwards to show us that the, the prophecies of the Old Testament all point to Jesus. He wants it to be evidently clear that as we read the Old Testament and we read those prophecies, it's all talking about Jesus. And so even in this morning, we're going to see several prophecies that are uh, fulfilled even in, chapter, uh, even in this chapter. But this is Numbers 24, 17. You can see it says, A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise of Israel. This was quoting the, uh, the Israelite Old Testament. And see, the, the, the wise men, they, they studied sacred writings. And so likely they had studied the, the Old Testament from the Israelite people. And they knew this prophecy. And so when they saw the star, they recognized this is a message. And they decided to go and to pursue and see the truth about this. Continuing on in verses 3 through 6, it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So word gets to Herod. The, the wise men are asking questions, and it gets to Herod, and it says that he's troubled. Why would he be troubled? Think through this. See, they're, they're asking about this king of the Jews, and this phrase has become synonymous with the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the one who was to come. And what they believed and, and knew about the Christ is that this Christ would come and he would be king of the Jews. What they also believed, but they kind of misinterpreted and misunderstood, but they believed that this Christ would be this mighty military ruler who would overthrow the authority of Rome. And they also believed that he would come and he would rule with full authority forever. So think about Herod. He is king of the Jews, given authority by Rome, and he is power hungry. And so he hears of this king, and he's deeply distressed. He's deeply troubled. But it doesn't say just him. It says everyone's distressed. Everyone's troubled by this news. Think about the religious leaders of the day. They, this would have been a major disruption for them. They were seen as the gatekeepers of religion. And so the fact that the Messiah, the anointed one, this new king was born and they had no clue, they're like, no, there's no way, that's impossible. Surely there would have been a great herald that would come and announce the coming of the Christ and let us know. But little did they know, there was a herald. It just didn't come to them, it came to lowly shepherds in a field. And so for them, they would have thought that this was just false claims that needed to be shut down. This was very dangerous to them and their way of life. 
But even for the rest of the people there, this is a major disruption. Could this be the long-anticipated Messiah who would come and set us free from this oppressive rule of Rome? And if this was the, the Messiah, that means war's coming. He's going to rise up and overthrow the power of wars coming, and so they were distressed as well. And so Herod, he calls in his religious leaders, his chief priests and his scribes. They were experts on Old Testament law. The chief priests, they gave oversight to the temple activities, and the scribes, they were the official interpreters of the Old Testament. And they, he asked where this Christ was to be born, and they actually referenced Math, uh, Micah 5, 2, and a few other Old Testament passages as well in this. And he says, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephratath, who are, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And so they say, hey, the ruler's coming to Bethlehem. Now, a couple of things to, to know about Bethlehem is Bethlehem is this small little sleepy village. It's a no-name village with two major claims to fame. One is that King David, the great king of Israel, he was from Bethlehem. And so what I think of is like when you're driving up through Monticello and you see a little sign, this small little town, but you see a sign that says like Trisha Yearwood was born here. That's what I picture Bethlehem. You're like going through, it's nothing, but then a big sign. King David was born here. That's one claim to fame. Then the other claim to fame is that, and it's a major one, that this is the birthplace of the future Messiah, this future Christ. And if you remember, the point I told you to mark in, in verse 1 is, where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem. He fulfilled this prophecy as well. And Herod, he's, he's read the truths of Christ, and he's face-to-face with the truth of Christ. And the question is, what will he do with them? Will he see Jesus for who he really is? Let's continue on. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star, what they had seen when it rose, when it went before them until it came to rest of the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So Herod secretly, he summons the wise men. Now, that, that should be an indicator there that he's up to no good. Why would you secretly summon them? But he asks them when the star appeared, and he does this to kind of figure out, get a judge of how old this new Christ, this new king is. And he tells them, hey, go to Bethlehem. That's where you'll find him. And when you find him, come back to me because I want to worship him too. But this was a bold-faced lie. He had no intention of worshiping him. So they go on their way, and they follow the star. And I don't know if you caught this, but when they saw the star resting of the place where Jesus was, it says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew is being very intentional with his language here. It would have sufficed for him to say, hey, they rejoiced when they saw the star. Or they had great joy when they saw the star. But he says, no, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew's being extremely intentional here. 
He wants you to know the overflow of joy in their heart that when they finally saw where that star rested, they just were overwhelmed with joy. A few weeks back, one of my best friends since birth, Seth, and his wife, Rachel, welcomed to the world their first-born baby girl, Ellie. And I've been texting him ever since, and he keeps texting me over and over again, man, I'm just so in love. I'm just, I, I'm just obsessed with her. And you parents, you know that feeling, this just abundance of joy that fills your hearts with, after that long-anticipated child is finally born. That's the picture here is they've, they've gone on this long journey. They've been seeking out where this Christ is. And they finally get there and like, this is it. And they are overwhelmed with joy. And then when they go in the house and they see Jesus there with Mary, they fell to their knees in worship. They were just overcome and in awe and wonder and love and joy. And they fell to their knees in worship of him and gave him gifts. And these gifts were actually fulfilling the uh, prophecy of Isaiah 66. But they fell to their knees and they worshiped him. Continuing on. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son." So not too long ago, I watched this documentary on the 1992 Dream Team. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The 1992 Dream Team was the men's basketball Olympic team for the United States. Uh, They competed in the uh, Olympic Games that were in Barcelona, and it was a big deal. I mean, this happened before I was even born, and I still know people on this team, right? You had Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Charles Barkley, and several other huge name people. And in the documentary, they said when they got to Barcelona, they said it was like Elvis and the Beatles put together. Like the people were obsessed. There were so many people pushing in, just trying to see them, get a glimpse of them. Maybe they could take a picture with them. Maybe they could get their autograph. It was a huge deal. And at one point, their bus got stuck in traffic and there was crowds of people all around. They were stuck for hours. They couldn't leave. And this one man on the team who was less known named John Stockton, he decided, I'm tired of this. I'm getting off this bus. And so he gets off his bus. He grabs his family, grabs a camera to try to blend in, and he starts walking the streets. And Michael Jordan and them were looking like, oh, I just wish I could do that because they couldn't get off. Everyone would attack them. And so they just kept walking and interacting with all these Team USA fans, all these people, and no one noticed him. And it actually got to the point where he's sitting there with his camera interviewing this one girl, and she's got her Team USA gear on, got a shirt with all of their faces of the team on it, and he's asking her, he said, hey, have you ever met someone on the team before? She said, yeah, we met Charles Barkley the other day. He said, well, have you met anyone else? She said, no, I've never met anyone else. And about that time, his little boy points at her shirt and says, daddy, daddy. And she looks down, and his face was on her shirt. And she said, wait a minute, you're on the team? He said, yeah. And here's the point. They She was obsessed with the dream team, traveled all that way to watch the game, was wearing their faces on her shirt. But when she was face to face with one of the players, she completely missed him. That's what happens to Herod here. 
Herod has read the truths of Christ and he is face to face with the truths of Christ, but he has completely missed the person of Jesus. He, went to, he wanted to seek out the Christ, but not to worship him. He wanted to destroy him. And so the wise men are warned, and they take another way back. They don't go back to Herod. And Joseph is also warned by an angel, and he's commanded to flee to Egypt. And that's outside the jurisdiction of Herod, so he'd be safe there. And we're told that this is a fulfillment of a promise, and this is actually Hosea 1.11. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this is actually a callback to when the Israelites were oppressed and enslaved in Egypt, and when the murderous king, the Pharaoh of Egypt, were, was killing the baby boys of the Israelites, God heard their cries and worked a salvation for them and called them up out of Egypt. And so it's calling back to that moment. But what we also learn is this is actually pointing to Jesus as well, that he and his family would come up out of Egypt. Finishing up in verses 16 and 8 through 18, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then, he, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So word gets back to paranoid Herod. And he finds out he's tricked. And in an attempt to preserve his power, he ruthlessly has all the baby boys in this area murdered. And then it says what was said of them was, this is actually Jeremiah 31.15. It's a call to that, that uh, verse, which was talking about when the Israelites were in exile. Rachel is actually the, the wife of Jacob, so she's the mother of Israel. It says that she cries for her children who are in exile. And that's what's said of this, this moment in uh, Israel's history. When all these baby boys were killed, it says there was loud weeping for them. That Rachel was weeping for her children once again. And it, I don't know if you see the extreme irony in this, where you have the family of God has to flee Israel now and go to Egypt. You know Egypt, the place where the Israelite people were oppressed and enslaved? And here you have the baby boy of Israel having to flee the murderous king of Israel back to Egypt where the Pharaoh had the baby boys killed. It's extremely dark and it's extremely sad. But there is hope. There's hope offered in the next two verses of Jeremiah 31 where it says, Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. He says, hey, he's speaking to the people um, when they're in exile. He says, hey, you're not going to be in exile forever. I will bring you up. I will work a salvation for you. You don't have to cry any longer. You, you will be redeemed. There is hope for your future. And that would also be true of Jesus and his family as well. They would return from Egypt. God would call them back. Jesus would grow up and he would be perfect in every single way. He would keep all the commands of God. As an adult in his ministry, he performed many miraculous signs. He gave sight to the blind. 
He made the lame walk once again. He healed the sick, and he preached to the multitudes. But his message struck a nerve with the religious leaders of the day. And they had him arrested, claiming that he was blaspheming the God of Israel. They arrested him. They put him through a mockery of a trial. They had him beaten, and they took him before a political leader named Pontius Pilate. And their Pilate set out to uncover the truth about Jesus. But as he was questioning him, he found no fault with him. He said, this man has done nothing wrong, but the religious leaders wouldn't have it. They said, no, you must do something about him. He must be killed. And so Pilate continues to question him. And Jesus eventually says this. He says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He says, my purpose has come to bear witness to the truth, the truth about God, the truth about myself, the truth that through me you can be reconciled to God. I have come to bear witness and proclaim the truth. And then Pilate tragically responds in verse 38 and says, what is truth? In other words, truth does not even exist. And here when Pilate is seeking to know the truth, staring the embodiment of truth in the eyes, he completely missed the truth. And he rejected the truth. And he releases a criminal out to the people and he sentences the truth to be flogged and crucified and hung on a cross to die. And on that cross, truth died. There was an attempt once again to, to snuff out the truth of Christ. But Jesus, praise the Lord, does not stay dead. He arises in victory on the third day, victorious over sin and death itself. And this is good news for each and every one of us because because of our sins, we are in exile. We are far from God. In Ephesians 2, it's going to say that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. But the hope that we read in Jeremiah 31, verses 16 through 17, is extended to us for all, as well. Our tears do not have to persist. We will return from the land of the enemy of sin and of death. There is hope for our future. John 8 is going to tell us that we are slaves to sin, but in Christ, the truth will set us free. And Jesus so boldly proclaimed in John 14, 6, that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, if you embrace me, the truth, you will be reconciled to your heavenly Father. And what it teaches us in Scripture is that if we will confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. If we will just embrace this truth of Christ. No one stands before the truth of Christ indifferent. We will either embrace it or we will reject it. And to accept the truth of Christ, it leads to life. Life in abundance. Life eternal. But those who reject the truth of Christ will ultimately get exactly what they want. They will get an eternity separated from the goodness of God that they rejected and an eternity without the hope of Christ. And so the question for us this morning, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what will you do with the truth of Christ? What will you do with the truth of Christ? Will you take the route of Herod and of Pilate and all these other religious leaders and reject it and suppress it? Or will you take the route of the wise men 
and seek after it and embrace it and allow it to stir your heart to worship the Lord. There's many of you in here and you are followers of Christ. There's many of you who you have put your faith and trust in Jesus. And, and for you, you, you understand and know that it's easy to grow numb to the truth of Christ. It's easy to allow this miraculous life and death and resurrection of Jesus to grow cold in your heart and to become, become common to you. My hope and my prayer for you who are followers of Christ is that you would return to your wonder and your awe of Jesus. That you, like the wise men, would find yourself just overwhelmed with the joy in your heart at the truth of Jesus, that you would find yourself on your knees in worship of him, giving your life for him, that it would not be cold in your heart any longer, that you would find yourself just in awe of the truth of Jesus. My hope is that you would ask the Lord, God, please stir my heart's affections for you. Help me see you for who you are. Help me love you more, Lord. There's others of you, and you identify more with the wise men. You are far in the east. And maybe for you, you have got your own preconceived notions about spirituality and, and faith and Christianity and Jesus. And for you, you don't even really know what truth is at this point. My hope and my prayer for you is that you would take the route of the wise men and you would seek after truth that you would relentlessly pursue the truths of God. What it teaches us in Scripture is that if we seek the Lord with our whole heart, if we seek him with every fiber of our being, he will be found by us. That if we would draw near to the Lord, he draws near to us. And so my hope and my prayer for you is that you would relentlessly seek these truths, that you would study the claims of Scripture, that you would surround yourselves with the people of God. And those of you who are followers of Christ, who have seekers in your life, do not shame them and push them away. Embrace them. When they ask hard questions, embrace them. You who are seekers, ask hard questions. You are not wrong to have questions. Seek and pursue the truths of God with your whole being, and you will find him. And then finally, for those of you who identify more with Herod or the religious leaders, here in the South, in the Bible Belt, it's easy to be surrounded your whole life with the truths of Christ, just like Herod and these religious leaders, to read the truths of Christ and be read the truths of Christ, but completely reject and miss the truth of Christ. My hope and my prayer for you is that your eyes would be open to the truth of Jesus. My hope and my prayer for you is that you would ask yourself some very difficult questions. Do, do I really believe what I claim to believe? Has my heart really been changed by the gospel of Christ? Do my actions reflect what I claim to believe? Do I have a real relationship with Jesus, or am I just playing the church part? Am I just found in the right places? My hope and my prayer is that you, too, would seek the genuine truths of Christ. And so what will we do with the truth of Christ? Will we take the route of Herod, or will we take the route of the wise men? My, my prayer is that all of us, believer and unbeliever alike, would turn our hearts to the truths of Jesus, and we would find ourselves on our knees in worship of him.